You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Have you ever stopped to question your desires? Maybe in the past or even now you have watered the seed of your selfish desires hoping they would bring joy, hoping they would bring peace, and hoping they would ultimately satisfy. Well, here's the reality. A serpent's whisper echoing into the fleshly hearts and desires of man was a recipe for disobedience and disaster, for brokenness and bondage, disease and death. A perfect union between God and man was severed by the sin of his beloved creation. However, even in the midst of darkened and corrupted hearts, where the weeds of sin attempt to choke out everything good and beautiful, lies a narrow path forward. In his grace and loving kindness, God predestined this path as the only way for the wilted hearts of man to spring back to life and once again experience the magnificent garden of redemption. Okay, first of all, that was pretty cool. <laughs> Great job, creative team, putting that together. But what it does is it provides imagery for what we're going to be doing over the next three Sundays and the next four services. And this time of the year, we center on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you might be wondering, why, why are we focusing on a garden imagery? Well, you know, every year our creative team sits together and we pray and discuss about what will be the theme for the Easter season. And over the last few years, we've really been trying to focus on reminding one another that the Bible is a story. And so whether this is your first time with us at Ascend, whether this is your first time in a church, maybe ever or, or for a long time, we want to all be in the same place where we remember that this, this book, this ancient book, this book that is so misunderstood and so misused in our culture today is, is actually a story. It's a story ultimately about the character of God, about the human condition, and also about God's plan for redemptive history from the beginning to the end. That's what this story is about. And just like any great story, stories provide lenses. If you think about some of the great novels of any time, if you think about some of the great theater plays, some of the great movies, really what they're doing is the, the authors are providing lenses through which we can view themes that bring the story forward. They provide vivid imagery. They provide color. They provide background, they develop characters, and those themes are enabling us as a reader or as a viewer to accurately understand the story. And so as we go through the Bible, there are themes and there are lenses, but what we've decided to do over these next four services is use the lens of the garden. There are four gardens that we want to draw from throughout the Bible. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden with the Empty Tomb, and then the Garden imagery of the New Jerusalem. What we pray will happen is that as you look through the lens of the garden and you see the theme of redemption, you will be able to accurately understand, have you been redeemed? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, I thank you for the most incredible story that has ever been written. The story that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. The story that has as its center theme, not us, but you. I thank you that every story, that every chapter, that every paragraph, that every word has as its ultimate purpose to reveal yourself and your character. And as we see your character, we further understand who we are and what the condition is of our hearts. And as we contrast those two, we better understand what your redemptive story is about.
And so I pray that as we have the videos on the screen, as we have the different plans for songs and sermons, that over the next four services, every individual who participates would be able to beautifully see redemption and make sure that they themselves have been redeemed. To the glory of Christ, and in his name I pray, amen. Would you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you and you can find that Bible and the opportunity to join us as we walk through Genesis 1 through 3. The idea of a garden is something with which I enjoy the benefits, I don't enjoy the work. The benefits are many. You can walk into a garden and immediately be moved to a place of peace. It's funny to be able to be in the middle of New York City and to go to Central Park. And while maybe not a garden as we might immediately think, it is of sorts a garden. And as soon as you walk in there, you experience shade. The the, the sounds of the city are amazingly removed and you get to see colors and textures and enjoy the benefits of a garden. Other benefits of the garden include fruit and, dare I say, vegetables. (laughs) But one of the blessings of a garden is experienced when you linger, when you actually stop, when you begin to pay attention and look at the different angles and the different plants, the different structures And you begin to understand and enjoy the value that a garden provides. And so these next four services, we will look and linger in these gardens. The first garden is the garden of the configuration of redemption. The the word configuration is something that even though we may not use on a daily basis, we are familiar with it. We configure perhaps a home. Maybe you've been able to build a new home, and you know that when you go to the builder, there is a basic home, but then you get to configure it to your needs and to your liking. There are opportunities to configure cars if you've ever gone and bought a new car. There is a base model, and then you say, well, I want the sports trim, or I want these tires, but, but I'm drawn immediately to the configuration of a computer. I see two people that got excited about that. But think about it this way. When all of us use a computer in some capacity, most of us just to check the box at work, but when you think about a computer, you want to think about and consider what is the purpose of that computer. If you're going to use your computer to store a lot of photos, then you probably want to take the base model of that computer and add some hard drive storage. If you are an investor in a computer and don't want to have to replace it every year, you will probably want to add to your RAM. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. And then, if you're one of the chosen few who understands the value of video gaming, you want to make sure you have an amazing graphics card. Now, the point is, is that when we understand the purpose of the computer, when we understand what we want out of the computer, when we understand the value that the computer adds to our life, then we configure it properly. And that's what we see in the Garden of Eden. The creator of the universe has laid out the configuration of his redemption. And when we think about the word configure, it really means to arrange elements in a particular or an intentional or a purposeful way. And the creator does that in the Garden of Eden to better help us understand the value and purpose of redemption. The big idea is in your notes The configuration of creation is God's perfect design. It's the perfect design of the creator, but unfortunately and tragically, it was shattered, but a path has been made. We'll see that in the laying out of the elements and in the shattering of that design in chapters 1 and 3 in Genesis. I hope you've arrived there. 
Genesis is at the beginning of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed by that. Because the more you come to this church, the more that we study God's word, if you just give it time, this book will become more familiar. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's the beginning of our Bible because it gives us the beginning, the beginning of God's plan, the beginning of God's story, the beginning of God's introduction of himself to humanity. We're going to see three elements, and then we're going to see one disaster. The first element that is laid out in the configuration of redemption is presence. Would you write that down? Presence. From the opening lines of creation, we see God's presence. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. The Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. We also see in verse 3, God said. We see several times throughout chapter 1 that God saw. We see in verse 26, God said, let us make man in in our own image. We see that he blessed creation. We see that he speaks to creation. He speaks about creation. The Lord is present in creation. But would you look at chapter 3 and verse 8? There are passages like this that when we read them, we might be tempted to just run right past it. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And anybody who's following knows that I'm actually reading from chapter (laughs) 2. Look at chapter 3 and verse (laughs) 8. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord, look at this word, walking in the garden. Would you underline that if you're willing to write in your Bibles? Would you underline it or circle it or put a rectangle or a star or whatever you need to do to draw attention to that word walking? Because we might be tempted to think that that is simply the author of Genesis giving us action. That God the creator was walking simply, doing an action in the garden. He was maybe taking a stroll. But friends, I want to remind you, if you've been coming to Ascend for a while, or teach you, if you haven't, that the Bible and understanding it is an ark. It is an ark of understanding what the Bible actually means. We don't just read the word walking and then just assign our expectations and understanding to it. We want to understand what did God mean when he moved the author of Genesis to write walking. We look at the word, we look at the history, and then we look at the rest of Scripture. And then we see how those Scriptures allow us to point ourselves and our minds to Christ. And that exercise will get us to a place where instead of us putting our expectations and understanding on the Bible, we actually understand it as he intended it. And when we do, I think it's a very interesting exercise. The author is not just simply telling us that the Lord God creator was taking a stroll. He was actually informing us what that looked like. I'm going to give you some other passages, and the team will put them up on the screen. But this word and another word that is translated dwell go hand in hand and will help us understand God's presence. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12 are the instructions from God to his people, the Jews, on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that was at the center of Israel as they went through the wilderness, having left Egypt, heading toward the promised land. This tabernacle would be the hub right in the middle of all of the people, and the spokes of all the tribes would be spread out. But at the epicenter of the Jews was this tabernacle, this place of worship where the dwelling place of God was through the Ark of the Covenant. In Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God says that I will walk among my people. Same word that we found in Genesis 3, 8. He says, I'll walk 
among my people for the purpose of dwelling with them. See, what we're recognizing is that the presence of God is relationship. The presence of God is intimacy. The presence of God is more than just action. It's more than just location. It's relationship. You can also write down Deuteronomy 23 and verse 14. The Lord God said through Moses that he is walking in the midst of the people. Same word from Genesis 3.8. As we accelerate through the Old Testament, we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God was giving to David the Davidic covenant, the promise that God gave to David that he would have a son on the throne of Israel. And we understand that that was not just a literal historical promise, it was also symbolic of the ultimate son of David who would sit on the throne of the universe, none other than Jesus Christ. And it says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 6 that God was, would be moving about his people, that same word translated walk, that he would place his dwelling amongst his people. And then we get to the New Testament. And that imagery does not stop. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, perhaps a verse with which you are familiar, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of God? Now, I I used to think that that meant that we're supposed to take care of our physical bodies and watch what we eat and exercise, and there's an application to be had of that, but that's not the point of Paul in that text. Paul is saying, do you not realize, remember back to the Garden of Eden, remember back to the tabernacle, remember back to the temple in Jerusalem, and that that was the place where God dwelt, and you had to go to that physical location in order to be in the presence of God. But Paul is saying, amazingly, and through Christ, God's Spirit now dwells in you. That's amazing. And so, friend, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and are trusting in the completed work of Christ for your salvation. God, the God of the garden, the God of the tabernacle, the God of the temple, of the ark of the covenant dwells in you in this place. That's awesome. Oh, I did hear some amens. But then you know what? It doesn't stop there. You can write down Revelation 21 and verse 3, the, the end of the story. John is describing what he saw, and he said, Behold, I heard a a voice, and the voice said this, Behold, the dwelling place. See, see, See that concept. See that understanding of presence. The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will be their God, and they will be his People And do you see how this theme of presence has been pulled from Genesis 3.8 through the nation of Israel, through the church age to the point that we will enjoy for eternity God's presence. Now I know there's some of you that as I look out because I received your emails, enjoyed the lockdown more than others. And I think though if we were all fair, and we acknowledge the statistics and the studies, we would acknowledge that there was negative impact on every human being during lockdown because of lack of presence. See, God has designed us to enjoy presence. And yes, there is value in Zoom conference calls or Teams conference calls, but there is nothing like presence. There's more effective communication. There's more effective understanding. Relationships are strengthened and grown through presence. And all the way back to the Garden of Eden and all of these examples of God's presence in the creative seven days, I think culminate in chapter 3 and verse 8. And what we see through this account is that God's presence was relationship. God's presence was interaction. God's presence was intimacy. 
And so the element of presence that is revealed in the Garden of Eden is this, being actively and intimately engaged with the presence of God. That is what God has designed for us. He has designed us to be actively and intimately engaged with his presence. Now, there's more to be said. There is a second element that moves us to better understand what presence is, and that is the element number two of provision. Provision. I hope that some of you can think of the verse from where this statement that I'm about to mention comes. But the Word of God, this, this book, the story that we are reading is, is different than any other story that has been, that he is, or will ever be written. In that, it is living and active. And there's a number of different applications that we can make from that statement, but ultimately what it means is, is that we can never read this book and come to the end of understanding it all. And so what it does is it actually whets our appetite. It actually motivates us to study this book because no matter how many times you've read it, no matter how many times you've heard it preached, you will always discover something new. Now let me hasten to add that the Bible has only one interpretation. Would you please write that down? The Bible is not left up to each one of us to bring our own interpretation to this text. There are many applications, but there is only one interpretation. Now, many passages are a lot more straightforward than others. And if you've been here for several weeks or months, you know we're studying the book of Revelation. And that is a difficult book to interpret, but we still stretch ourselves. We still use the tools that Jesus modeled, that the authors of scriptures modeled. And as we use those tools, we can come to a place where with a high level of confidence, we understand the interpretation that God has for that text. This book is living and active, and I've read this section so many times. I've actually preached on it, but I've discovered something new through the lens of the Garden of Eden to be able to see the provision of redemption. There's two provisions in verses 9 through 14. There's the provision of vegetation and the provisions of water. Let's look at vegetation, first of all, And as we think about the presence of God, we we see the presence of God in the creation of vegetation. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, who made it? It says, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. So so, so here's my, my hypothesis, is that the presence of God is what produced the vegetation. I get that in the text. The vegetation didn't just have a big bang. The creator himself is the source of vegetation. The presence of God as creator produced the vegetation. But look at the beautiful majesty of the character of God. The vegetation isn't just for us to eat. Look at verse 9. He made every tree that is pleasant to the sight to spring up. Isn't that awesome? Friends, we live in a busy culture that just runs from one thing to the next. We would do well sometimes to just stop and enjoy the beauty of God's creation. You ever held a leaf in your hand? Felt the texture? Looked at the veins? Looked at the colors? And I'll stop right there because I'm not a botanist. God has created a magnificently beautiful creation. This is our creator. In his presence, there is the provision of vegetation for beauty. I think we don't stop to recognize that enough. You know what's fascinating in Exodus? is that all those details that go into the building of the tabernacle and all of the architectural designs constantly say that he made it for beauty and for glory. The presence of God provides beauty, and we see that in the vegetation, but it also provides nourishment, doesn't it? 
He says that he caused the vegetation to spring up, not just for beauty, but also what was good for food. And then we get to see what the rest of the Bible we use as symbolism, which here, I believe, was a literal tree in verse 9. The tree of, what does it say? You can see it right there in the text. The tree of life. Now, the rest of the Bible uses this literal tree to symbolically teach spiritual truths. You can write down Proverbs 3 and verse 18. You can write down Proverbs 11 and verse 30. Proverbs 13 and verse 12. Proverbs 15 and verse 4. This is the wisest man that's ever lived, and he's using the imagery of the tree of life to be able to put forth the provision of being in the presence of God, that in the presence of God we get wisdom. In the presence of God we get, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, everything that we need for life and godliness. Don't you think that if there was a resource that gave us everything that we needed for life and godliness, we should access it? It's the tree of life. But then what's interesting is that the tabernacle actually has this imagery. You can write down Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40, and Exodus 37, 17 through 24. By the way, I've said this kind of jokingly, but, but I'm more serious today. If you struggle studying God's word and you think, oh, I just don't know where to start, every sermon at Ascend will give you scriptures. And if you'll take the time to write them down, you will probably have enough to read through the entire week to get some more next Sunday. But what you'll see in these passages is imagery like flowering almond blossoms. And what you'll see is that this is actually describing the the design of a lampstand that was intended to reflect a tree. You see this again with the temple. I'll give you some more passages. And in fact, this is amazing how God does this. I'm reading through the Bible in in a year, and guess what section I read this morning? This one right here. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 18, verse 19, verse 32, verse 35, all of those showing imagery of gardens and flowers and trees. A literal tree in the Garden of Eden showing us vegetation that was both beautiful and nourishing reminds us that in the presence of God is abundant life. You can write down Psalm 16 and verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And guess where you find God's presence? Right here. Isn't that awesome? God's presence is in this book. God's presence is pointed through through the truths of this book because God's presence is accessible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the provision of God is his presence as reflected in vegetation, but then also in rivers. Look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden. Look at this. To water the garden. You didn't have to go to Home Depot. You didn't have to have a landscaping company come and take care of the nourishment. God's presence caused water that the vegetation needed to flow through and out of the garden. But it wasn't limited to this. Look at what it says. It says that it divided there and became four rivers. And if you follow the text, it talks about how it went around and through the whole land of Havilah, the whole land of Cush, and the whole land that included, later on, Assyria. How amazing is it, God's provision. I do think that it's interesting that there are jewels and resources that are also included here. Verse 12 talks about gold, delium, and onyx. What's interesting is that these are constantly referred to in other passages relating to the presence of God. You can write these down. 
Revelation 21, verse 18. Revelation 21, verse 21. Numbers 11, verse 7. And Exodus 25, and verse 7. Even if you just got one or two of those. What it does is it shows us that with the priests, the priests had gold. The priests had onyx stones. In Revelation, the symbolism of gold is used with the presence of God. We, we see this symbolism. But then also, you can write down Ezekiel 47. I know the feedback I'm going to get after the service is too many verses. <laughs> Revelation 22, 1 through 2. There we see the imagery of the river of life. You know, I think it's interesting. I think there is purpose from God and through the authors of Scripture to equate Eden with God's temple. In fact, we'll put a picture up on the screen. Isn't it interesting as you walk through Genesis 1 through 3 and you see Eden, you see the garden, and then you see that the instruction from the Creator to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Go to the ends of the earth, the outer courts, as it were. And then you see this with the tabernacle and with the temple, the holy of holies, the holy place, and the ends of the earth. Friends, right here in this imagery, we see the blessing and benefit of being in the presence of God, and it is provision. But, but here's some imagery that I, I want to draw from. I, I remember my baseball days and how valuable water was. And here in the Midwest and in Kansas City, it gets hot. If you've just moved, get ready. And you might look at a day yesterday and think, man, it'll never get hot. Oh, it will. And I remember tournaments and doubleheaders especially when I was a catcher and you just get so hot. But you know what? You're exhausted after an inning and you just go and you sit down and there's water there for you, but you don't want to drink it because that means you'd have to get up. That means you'd have to go get a cup. You have to press on the little Gatorade button, wait for it to fill and then drink. It's too much work. But what ends up happening is you realize all too late that you're dehydrated I just started dating my wife, and we were driving back from a doubleheader that I had caught both of the games. It was over 100 degrees, and all of a sudden, my body cramped up, and I had to go out on the side of an interstate and lay down on that hot pavement because there was nothing else I could do because I was dehydrated. The problem was, as I walked past the Gatorade jug so many times. And see, friends, God has designed us to be hydrated ultimately by his presence, and so it's no wonder that we get to places in our lives where marriages are falling apart, where all of a sudden the, the heaviness of our life and the depression of our life gets to a point of hopelessness and despair. And it's often because we've moved past the Gatorade bottle and the Gatorade jug of God's presence. And by the time we realize we're dehydrated, it's not too late, but it's close. Here's a quote from G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim. Since true life and sustenance, substance, are found in the presence of God, we must regularly deep deeply from the river of his delights. Oh, friends, this is repeated, isn't it? Maybe your mind is drawn to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. See, see, here's the thing. I think sometimes I'll talk to people who are in a bad place in their lives, and they'll say, I'm reading God's word daily. I was there just before sabbatical last summer. I was reading God's word daily, was checking the list off, but I was in a dehydrated place. Why? Because I wasn't abiding I wasn't meditating on God's word. You see, meditating is a word in the Hebrew that is also used to describe the cooing of a dove. If you've ever been through a dove or heard a dove in the morning, it is annoying <laughs> because it's just constant. <laughs> Get out the, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> 
But it's that idea of meditating on the word. It's not just reading it in the morning and that's the last time you interact with it until the next day. You're marinating in it. You're meditating on it. Blessed is that man. Why? Because his roots are in the streams of water. So that when the drought comes, the leaf does not wither. So that in the proper time, the proper fruit is born. Oh, God's presence is the first element that produces provision. Exactly what we need is the second element. The third element, number three, is purpose. Purpose. One of the most important questions human beings have asked through the ages is, what is my purpose? Is it to make money? Is it to climb the corporate ladder? Is it to be in politics? Is it to have possessions? Is it to provide for my kids what my parents weren't able to provide for me? What is purpose? And the element is right here in the garden. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him, by the way, The word put is the verb Noah. I think that's interesting. A word elsewhere translated rest. So it's interesting that God Noahed Adam to work. Have fun with that this week. Verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Here's your purpose, Adam, to work it and to keep it. And all God's people said, duh, that's what you do with the garden, right? I know that was a boo-boo word growing up for our kids, so I apologize, parents, if you're telling your kids not to say duh. But he put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. Remember the arc of Scripture. We don't just read these words and say, well, I think it means this, or I feel it means this. We use the rest of the Bible to educate us, and if we do that, more verses. Write down Leviticus 18, verse 5. Write down Numbers 1, verse 53. And then this one we're going to put up on the screen for you. I think. Maybe not. Numbers 18, verses 5 and 6. Numbers 18, verses 5 and 6. It says this, and you shall keep guard over the sanctuary. Does that sound familiar? And over the altar and that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the surface. Same word we see in Genesis 2.15. You know, the fact is, is that these two terms are closely associated with priestly duty. So what God was commanding Adam to do was not just to have a green thumb. He was actually commanding Adam to exercise the priestly duty of guarding the garden from pollution and corruption. But, but I've used the word a couple times because it's right there in the text that really gets us to where we can find our purpose. The, the word is commanded. You see it in the text? Verse 16, the Lord God commanded. The word command means to instruct. The word command means to give out rules. The word command means to give out orders to a soldier. Those orders are expected to be obeyed. I love Lee's illustration last week. What a powerful message from Psalm 119. And boy, if you didn't have something to read, 170 verses in one chapter, that'll keep you busy. But but I love what Lee said about his mentor. His mentor had asked him one time when he was growing up, do you love your parents? You remember Lee's response was, yes. And his mentor asked him, kind of like Jesus with Peter, do you love your parents? Yes. And his mentor said, then why aren't you living like it? 
Friends, I've already asked myself this question. I'm now going to ask you, eyes up here for a moment. Do you love God? See, the follow-up question to that is, are you living like it? See, the fact is, is that's where works come into salvation. Works do not produce salvation. They verify it. If you say that you love God, if like these precious young ladies said in the baptismal, we love God, we've given our life to Christ, we, 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 we say that we are Christians, then give evidence of it. And their testimonies did. Now, not perfectly, but patternly, if that's a word. We're not just obeying God in our actions. Listen to this. We're also obeying God in our attitudes. So many times in the book of Numbers, God referred to his people as a stiff-necked people. Remember, the idea of a stiff-necked person is that dog who is over here wanting to go this way, and the owner saying, no, 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 this way, and they're just stiff-necked. See, but it's not just our actions, it's also our attitudes. And so, friend, as I ask you, as I've already asked me, do you love God, how are you loving him with your attitudes? Whether it be the government, whether it be your employer, whether it be your spouse, are you characterized as a person who is joyful because it is a settled disposition rooted in the character of God, or are you a person who's characterized by grumbling and complaining because the wind of your life of circumstances is what blows you? See, God commanded Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. And yes, it involved physical labor, but it also required spiritual priestly duties. And so, friend, our purpose is to study, understand, and apply God's commands. That's it. I mean, you want to just... Blow the minds of a philosopher? Give them that answer to the question, what is purpose? The purpose that God gave Adam was obey his commands. And so here we see the three elements of the configuration of redemption laid out in the garden. The purpose revealed in Adam being commanded to live out and obey God's commandments, the presence of God all throughout creation, walking in relationship with Adam and Eve, the provision of God shown by literal vegetation and literal rivers that the rest of the Bible shows us abundantly and symbolically the spiritual provision of God. But the fact is, that's not the end of the story, is it? Which brings us to number four. It's all been laid out. The configuration is perfect. Disaster occurs and protection is removed. I mean, this is the ultimate creator. He has said, I have created humanity to enjoy this, to follow after this. It's all there. And our parents messed it up. But friends, before we improperly judge them, so would we. So, so here's what I want you to see. I, I want you to see in the fall of Adam and Eve the problem, the punishment, and the path. The problem, the punishment, and the path. You know, the prevailing thought when we think of commandments, especially for us as Americans, is that commandments are limiting Commandments are restricting. Commandments and laws are intended to oppress, but not God's. Okay, friends, did you hear that? Because let's not just go through the routine of acting like you're paying attention to a sermon, and let's actually ingest this. God's commands are intended to free us. God's commands are intended to be liberty. God's commands are intended to protect us. But Adam and Eve threw that away. And it's vividly on display in chapter 3. 
Maybe you've been through this exercise. I have before, but, but I'll tell you, I, I've been blessed by what Beale and Kim provided. Four ways that Satan and Eve twisted God's word. And last week, remember we talked about that in Revelation 9. That's what he does. That's what Satan does. He twists. And so look at how Satan and Eve twist God's word. First of all, number one, they change the name of God. When you go back to chapter 2 and verse 16, how does the author of Genesis describe the one giving the command? It says, the Lord God, which if you're looking at your English text, many of yours will have Lord all in caps. When Lord is all in caps in the Old Testament, that means it's translating God's covenant name, Yahweh. And so here, it is the Lord God. It is covenant-keeping God and creator. God here is describing his creative attributes. Lord is describing his covenantal relationship attributes. That's what verse 16 says. But when you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, serpent says to the woman, did God, creator, actually say? The name of God has changed very subtly. Then we also see the permission of God is minimized, and boy, don't we also do that? Verse 16 in chapter 2, the Lord God says you may surely eat of every tree. Man, that's a great blessing, isn't it? But here in chapter 3, the permission is Maxima, or is minimized as Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, God said you can eat of every tree except one. So permission is minimized. Number three, prohibition is maximized. And we see that in society. We see that in our own hearts. Man, God doesn't want me to enjoy Look at all the things that he tells me I can't do. What does it say in verse 16? You may not eat from one tree. Verse 3, the woman says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. She goes a step further in the prohibition. And then the fourth one. The consequences of sin are minimized. I had never seen this before. Verse 17, God tells Adam that the day that you eat of the tree that is forbidden, you will surely die, absolutely. The woman says in verse 13, lest you die. Subtle twisting. So why is it important that we are students of God's word? Because God, Satan twists the word. Our own human flesh twists the word. We look for loopholes. We try to explain away our sin. We try to give ourselves a crutch to do what our flesh wants to do and not follow the commands of God. There are subtle twists. It is dangerous, and so it is for our protection that we study, understand, and apply God's word. It's interesting how Adam and Eve respond to their conviction it says in chapter 3, look at this, in verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. It says later that they sewed clothes for themselves of fig leaves. I don't know about you, that's not going to feel good. This is what man does. We try to solve ourselves by ourselves by our own effort, by isolating rather than humbly entering into the presence of the Lord. There's risk in entering the presence of the Lord when you're in sin. But we try to solve it ourselves. We try to do our own efforts. We try to isolate ourselves. That's the problem. The punishment is that God takes the perfect configuration and it's no longer perfect. Verse 16, the pain of childbirth will increase. Verse 16, women will not be content with God's role for their lives. Verse 16, man's ruling of a woman will be corrupted. Verse 17, man will work with an uncooperative earth. And while presence and provision are still there, it will not be perfect, which leads us to the path. Isn't God gracious? 
What a disaster produced by man. And yet verse 21 says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife clothes. And they're animal skins. They're going to feel better. They're going to last longer. They're better for you. The path includes God's provision, his grace, his mercy, but also look at verse 15 of chapter 3. There will be an offspring that will bruise a mortal crushing of the serpent's head. But what's interesting is that embedded in this is redemption, isn't it? Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, animal skins. I can just tell you this was not a live animal that just, (laughs) those animals had to be killed. And friends, that is the path to redemption. It is the death of the offspring prophesied in chapter three, verse 15. It is the death, none other than the one that we will celebrate this Friday, Jesus Christ. So I wanna invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes because this is your opportunity your opportunity to not just sit and learn some new truths about God's word or recalibrate to these amazing, beautiful truths. The opportunity for you is to respond. The question to you is, have you been redeemed? Have you trusted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover your sin? Have you surrendered to Jesus as King and Lord of your life? If not, please do that today. We'll have members of our prayer team at the ends of the platform, and they would love to be able to pray for you. Friend, if you have, are you enjoying the element of the presence of God? Are you intimately and regularly engaging with his presence through his word and experiencing the provision of God, nourishment, beauty, because you're seeing things through his lenses. Is there sin in your life that you're trying to fix yourself or you think that you're solving it by isolating yourself? Oh, friends, the elements of the configuration of redemption are right here in the Garden of Eden. It's been corrupted by our own sin nature. But the path has been made. And the path is redemption through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the beginning of this study that has allowed us to linger in the Garden of Eden. Been able to enjoy the colors and the structures of the vegetation and taste of the fruit. And yet see so vividly the desperate need that we have as children of our parents, Adam and Eve, for the path that you made for redemption. Would you take your word and cause it to sink deep into our hearts to bear gospel fruit so that wherever we are, whether it's pain, whether it's suffering, whether it's rebellion, the redemption would move us along the path to be once again enjoying your presence. It's in Jesus' name I pray.